You're listening to KBOO Portland. Stay tuned for the Holy Crowley Hour. Okay, boys and girls, let's go. All right. Another wretched morning, a wretched October day. No sound of angels in the trees, Christmas. But then a voice starts looking round, the vision comes to play. And this is what the voice declaimed. It's Tomega Ferion's birthday! Don't give us no sacks, we'll kick your ass. We're the heralds of Crowley Mass. Good evening. And welcome to the special Cyber Monday edition of the Holy Crowley Hour. And since it's Cyber Monday, we're only charging you for the first 30 minutes. Such a deal. For those of you new to the show, you might be asking yourself, what's Cyber Monday? <laughs> no, what's the Holy Crowley Hour? Well, sometime several years ago, a KBOO talk show caller made an accusation. She claimed that there were several late-night DJs at the station who belonged to an Aleister Crowley cult. Alistair Crowley, for those of you who don't know, was a remarkable Englishman who lived from 1875 to 1947. He founded the religion of Thelema and styled himself a prophet, leading humanity into a new age of realization. He was also accused by some of being a Satanist, and the press at the time denounced him as the wickedest man in the world. Now back to that cable caller. In her defense, she was partly right. Many of our late-night DJs, myself included are members of a cult, and this cult is led by a Crowley. However, it's not the cult led by Alistair Crowley. Rather, it's the one led by his brother, Carl. Carl Crowley. Carl's Alistair's little-known brother, and that's just the way he wants it. You're probably wondering by now, is there any difference between the two Crowley cults? Yes, there are some major differences. For instance, Alistair Crowley's cult has but one commandment, do what thou wilt. Carl Crowley's cult also has but one commandment, do what I tell you. And that's the commandment we follow here on the Holy Crowley Hour. Whatever Carl tells me to say and play on the show, that's what I say and play. I do what I'm told and have no voice in what you're about to hear. The programming is under Carl's complete control. However, I will say it's fortunate for you, the listener, that Carl Crowley has impeccable taste. I'll be playing radio theater, podcast, comedy, novelty bits, and a few tunes guaranteed to entertain and enlighten, which is a whole lot better than I can say for some cults that have absolutely no sense of taste, like the cult that controls the Oregonian's editorial board. If I were a follower of that cult, instead of radio nuggets tonight, you might be hearing a love note to Vancouver, Washington-based white supremacist Joey Gibson. In their defense, the Oregonian and editorial board member Laura Gunderson pride themselves on their civic involvement and civic discourse, especially when it comes to praising misunderstood Nazis. So stay tuned for another exciting episode of the Holy Crowley Hour. I think you'll enjoy it. If not, well, you can always write a letter to the editor. And there ain't no grace, there ain't no
You're listening to the Holy Crowley Hour here on KBOO Community Radio, where it's Thanksgiving every day of the year. If you're a regular listener of the show, you'll know we usually spend the entire hour from 11 p.m. to midnight recapping the last month of Portland City Council meetings. But let's do something a little bit different tonight and talk podcasts, especially podcasts that are written, recorded, and produced here in Portland, and we're fortunate to have a bountiful number of very good ones. Our guests tonight are three of the artists behind The Diarist, a multi-episode serialized podcast set in 1950s New York City. The lead character, Andrea Davies, is a young secretary described in the first episode as a fish surrounded by sharks. In the words of one reviewer, The Diarist is what you get if Madman and Jane Eyre marry and have a baby, where a secretary becomes the personal assistant to a prickly and strange ad executive and falls in love. Another reviewer said the podcast is kind of like if Alfred Hitchcock decided to write a love story. If that whets your appetite, and I don't see how it couldn't, we have three guests from The Diarist with us here tonight to tell you more. Creator, producer, and co-director Donna Barrow-Green, actress, co-producer, and co-director Beth Ricketson, and actor, co-producer Ryan Bowen. We'll talk about audio podcasts and the diarist first, especially in light of the Me Too movement, and then play an episode for you in its entirety. Donna, Beth, and Ryan, welcome to KBOO. Thank you. Donna, let's start with you because you have the mic. I have the mic, that's right. (laughs) You've written eight novels, including the novel published before the diarist, uh, Exuberance is Beauty, subtitled Mm -hmm. A Story of Love and Tragedy in 1940s Oregon. Was your initial intention to write novels rather than podcasts? Audio drama? Well, I I, do, I write all in all kinds of, um, I write plays and novels, and then the podcast just sort of came from the, the last novel that I wrote. Which the is diarist. The Diarist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you find were the challenges in transferring a story written for the printed page to a podcast where stories told entirely in sound? <laughs> well, I think it was, I think there was a lot of hubris. Like, I thought, oh, you just create a podcast, you know? And so, like, so <laughs> I didn't... You're not alone. There's, right. I think there's close to a million now. <laughs> right, right. And I think, you know, I sort of jump into a lot of my writing stuff without um, just thinking that it can just happen. But it was really through... Um, I called Beth, who had worked on one of my plays. Um, and I was like, you know, I have this idea for a podcast. And then she knew Ryan. And the three of us got together. And originally, we were just reading the novel so we're kind of translating like from chapter to to episode and then we were adding some you know spicing it with dialogue and it kind of just evolved from there like I don't think like we really didn't know kind of what we're getting into like we had a little snowball mic and we would sneak into um the church at Mount Tabor on uh Tabor space and we would find a room like that nobody knew we were there we had this (laughs) mic and a laptop I think the laptop (laughs) and we were like and then we just I don't know. It just so that's. I mean, we just kind of it went from there, and then step by step, we're like, okay, we need. And even, I mean, I think it evolved nicely. But in the beginning, when we did the um, the sound and stuff, we were kind of like very um, conservative with it, and we didn't. We, it was kind of sparsely. But as the story unfolded, the sound begins to sort of. But now we're kind of using that as a psychological element as well. So now the sound is slipping into the outro music or it's getting weird or but in the beginning we used it very sparingly but again we were just learning as we 
So you've kind of picked up on some techniques that have been used in, uh, you know, the golden age of radio and radio mm-hmm. drama going back right. to uh, really the beginning of radio. Well, I we have, although um, when we we just did the live show uh, with PDX Radio Theater. Oh, right. With Exo Planetary yeah, and while I'm at Radio Workshop. That's right. At Twilight Theater. And um, we did live Foley. And so that was, you know, that was like so fun and exciting. And I can remember, um, cause we don't do live Foley on the podcast. We do, um, you know, I do all we electronic. Do all uh, yeah. 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 Uh, Digi- uh, digital effects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do some Foley, but then I started like, like my husband would be like, you put in kisses and then like, I have like sounds of like silk for when they're hugging and stuff. So now we have Beth Rickardson with Hi. us also, and you play the lead role of Andrea Davies in The Diarist. The story's told from your point of view, pretty much. Uh, how'd you get involved with the podcast? Donna mentioned that a little bit, uh, that uh, when she got the idea of adapting the novel, The Diarist, for the podcast, you were the first person she called. Yeah, um, I pretty soon after I moved to Portland, I've only been here for uh, about four years, um, I was looking on, there's a, a listserv called PDX Backstage, which lists a bunch of uh, auditions and, and opportunities for actors in town. And Donna was looking for people to stage, to do a table read, basically, mm-hmm. for one of her plays. And I was like, I don't know anybody. Let's, you know, go see what we can, you know, see what who I can meet and that sort of thing. And so that's how I met Donna. I did the, I did the table read. And then a couple months later, right? Yeah. Um, you decided to stage that, and so she called me to come back and be in the staged version of that, and that was If There Be Any Heavens, right? If There Are Any Heavens. If There Are Any Heavens, sorry. Um, oh, and that was a play that, that you wrote. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that's also the novel. Okay. Yeah. And also a novel, yes. Is that the same novel? Well, that's the whole crazy thing, yeah. There okay. It's five novels. It's all incestuous. It's all incestuous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, we should. Uh, okay. We're working. I, I should mention we're working with one mic in here. I, the, the other mic is, is not operational, <laughs> which is so unusual for Gabe. We'll stop uh, <laughs> side talking. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I did that, and then it was quite a while later. Like, we kind of kept years. in touch, but not, you know, off and on. And then, yeah, just out of the blue, she was like, hey, you want to do a podcast? And I was like, heck, yeah, I want to do a podcast. And you had never done one before? No, podcast? I hadn't, but I had actually started listening to them. I was I was getting pretty into them already. Oh, which ones? Because um, I was going to ask, uh, well, Donna, too, your influences oh, in wow. terms of uh, not just podcasts, but maybe radio theater or audio well, drama. I, I'm a huge geek, as uh, you can't see me, but I'm wearing a, a Sunnydale shirt right now. <laughs> um, so my first podcast I was listening to were Twin Peaks related ones, um, and then some some Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, then, interesting! Because uh, there was one review that compared the diarist to a Lynchian madman. Yeah, <laughs> I know that was a little maybe bit of one the of David my Lynch Yeah, uh-huh. um, but I also listened to you know I love. Um, Gosh, Radio Lab and you know, the Moth and so the nonfiction ones. The nonfiction well, of course, ones. The, the Moth is more biographical storytelling, right? Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then I did start listening to more more audio dramas, kind of when we started doing them, just to be like, this is you know, this is the scene we're going to be in. And then, and I have a friend who's very into audio dramas, so she's always recommending. She loves Welcome to Night Vale, of course, Lime Town, um, Alice Isn't Dead. She turned me on to, which I love. Um, and then I found. Oh, a girl oh, in space. space. Girl in oh. space is fantastic. Oh, Christopher um, mentioned that. Christopher Hart, who does Exoplanetary. Yeah, he yeah, and Exoplanetary is great. Uh. I mean, there's so many. I think, I mean, there's so many sci-fi ones, and I, you know, I like sci-fi, 
but I, I haven't found a ton that, that aren't, that are more, yeah. you know, either, especially not noir ones. But l- let me mention that your, your background, it's, it's clear you, your, your background in theater, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you were a member of the Eclectic Theater Company in North Hollywood, and so you have an extensive background in acting, but mostly on stage. Yeah, it's, so, it's the uh, Eclectic Company Theater, I'm going to because they would kill me if I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, if, well, actually, they're defunct now, but <laughs> even still, the people. Yeah, uh, I was part of uh, the Eclectic Company Theater in North Hollywood. Um, for several years, I was uh, on their development team, on the management team, um, and it's it's basically a, it was a kind of a producer's co-op. So it was you know you came in and it was uh, dues paying, but you also got to use the space for free when you wanted to do your own production. So there was a lot of support in that way. And yeah, it was a great little And they were all stage productions. And they were all stage productions. So how did you uh, adapt acting on the stage to acting kind of in front of a mic with just your voice? It's it's hard to do some of the business that I guess uh, stage actors do. Uh, even just pausing, I don't know, lighting an imaginary cigarette or... Yeah. Or, uh... <laughs> I think it was... Yeah, I've done a bit of film. Not a ton, but I have done a little bit of film. Um, so there's a little bit more of that awareness of, like, where you need to be, where your body needs to stand, being on your on your mark, that sort of thing. Um, and with a podcast, none of that uh, is visible. To, <laughs> to no, but I mean, like, in proximity to the mic, to the microphone, just having oh, to keep your oh, body, oh, like, certainly, yes. yeah, in, mm-hmm. like, a certain time and space, you know, so that you're heard and all the technical issues of that. And I think, I mean, it definitely was different. It definitely, I think Ryan and I talked a lot about, especially some of the more intimate scenes that we have together, you know, like looking over two mics into each other's eyes, you know, it's not quite the same as um, as being on a stage where you can really, really connect with each other in a bodily way. And, and so it's definitely different. Yeah, I was kind of wondering yeah. if it was more challenging because an actor, uh, I'm not an actor and I've never taken the acting, acting uh-huh. lessons, but I imagine a lot of it is how to use your body on stage. Yeah. And uh, again, the bits of business or gestures and you don't have any of that uh, yeah. on a podcast, an audio podcast. Definitely. I mean, the monologues don't feel much more difficult because they are like a diary entry. So I can come at it from that point of view. I definitely think, yeah, I think it is more challenging. I think it is more difficult. Um, But on the other hand, you know, the script is so well done and that is such a gift for an actor. I mean, you don't have to do a whole lot of work when the words are there and it's, you know, so that... That kind of, not, it's not sweet, it's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it kind of balances out, I guess, in that way. Now, Ryan Bone, you have the other leading role in The Diarist. You play Richard Hayes, and that's the, uh, quote, prickly and strange ad executive we mentioned earlier. <laughs> yes. And like Beth, you have a lot of experience acting on stage. You studied theater back east in right. Boston. And you're a member of Portland's Playback PDX improv group. Yes. Which is still extent, right? It's It's not defunct like... The eclectic uh, company theater. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. So uh, how did you... And so, and Beth is in that group as well. Donna mentioned that you got involved with the podcast through Beth. Uh, she yeah. contacted Beth. Beth contacted you. Yeah, they said they needed a male role with a decent voice, I think is how they put it. And uh, <laughs> perhaps they didn't say that. Maybe it, perhaps it's just, I need a male role. <laughs> so, You're a male, you'll do. <laughs> yes, any male will do. <laughs> so uh, Beth, just because we're in playback PDX together, which we immensely enjoy, and we have a friendship through that, um, she's called and asked if I would be willing to do this podcast. I said, sure. And then once I met Donna, 
read the script. And Donna is an incredible person. She has like 21 irons in the fire at all times. And she seems to complete so many things. She's so extremely creative and intelligent. And uh, I just love this friendship that us three, we three have since we've started doing The Diarist. Um, so I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I, I really have enjoyed it. Now, now we mentioned your role, and we, we were being uh, a little facetious by saying it's just any male actor there. It's clearly a very complex role, and I don't think an easy one at all. It's not uh, a standard melodramatic villain, uh, uh, Richard, in here. How'd you go about preparing for the role? Were there discussions with Donna and Beth on how to play him? You didn't want him to be Simon Legree or... or uh, 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 Brett Kavanaugh, <laughs> to use a, a more recent example. Oh, no. Don is talking about writing the next play uh, with Brett as a leading character. Uh, <laughs> he Did might... I let the cat out of the bag there? <laughs> he might be busy in January with House uh, Investigations, but <laughs> maybe he can make time. <laughs> I have beer. Sorry. Okay. Oh, I, that's like, r- I like beer. Yeah, it invites squeer. I squeeze. like beer. <laughs> you like beer? So... It was a difficult role. It still is a difficult role. Um, I try not to model my life after <laughs> victimizing women. Um, I am white, so I have that ability on that. Uh, I have that that idea that we have a right to um, to be in the lead. And I, I was raised kind of that way. I have wonderful parents, but because... So you could see it from that angle. Uh, yeah. He's a, a white male in yeah. 1950s New York and in business. Uh, not only that, but he's the primary person at the business. And so there's a lot of privilege going on there. And yeah. Andrea, uh, Beth's role, is subordinate to him. Right. And I run a business that's successful as well. So I also have a, a lot successful... Of, a lot of things you can draw on. Right, but I don't tend to <laughs> act that way towards my employees. I didn't think uh, so. <laughs> so it, it was a difficult role, but I, I would just have to drop the compassion in certain ways and think, okay, well, it was really difficult, especially as you mentioned, sitting at a table and not moving because I'm a, a very physical actor, and that's how my characters, they, they become informed through physicality. And it took me months to realize that, hey, if I just stand up, uh, this and move a little bit more, it becomes a lot stronger of a character. Like, for instance, the radio show was the live radio show was a, a very enjoyable because there was more movement, even though we were mostly standing still, it was still standing up. So, it took a lot of discussions. Some we record would record things two and three times, sometimes four, but usually oh, d- d- doing each take a little differently, yeah. And we'd, p- we'd give input and we'd re record it. And a lot of times, the first take ended up being the best, uh, and Donna would go with those. Now, the next question, we might have to uh, move the mic around a little. Uh, and this is in regards, Donna, to what you told me, that there was a discussion on the issues brought up in the play. So yeah. about uh, male privilege in 1950s New York, not that it's really gone away. Uh, repressive culture for women in 50s America, even in big cities like New York where it takes place. Uh, and in light of the current Me Too movement, so issues like uh, sexual abuse and violence and the treatment of women... Can you tell us a little bit about those discussions, why you thought they'd be fruitful uh, for the play, and if that affected the diarist, the podcast in any way, maybe the performances or some rewrites? Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's been sort of a big sort of shadow behind all of the stuff we've done. Um, when I, right before I decide, I think I, I, I mean, I can tell you that before, I, when I was writing the play, right, 
uh, when I was writing the novel about halfway through, um, I would go to a cafe and I'd write after I dropped my, so- my daughter off. And then I came home one day and my husband was at home and um, 23 years ago I had been sexually assaulted in San Francisco. And I got a call from the police saying that they matched a DNA from a stranger. After 23 years? Yeah. Uh, so and, is that a case of those uh, DNA kits uh, that, that uh, they were just neglected like, for right. many years? Ah. And um, so that was like in the middle of writing this story. And all of my stories have these themes and elements. But, it, you know, I had to sort of take pause and then deal with the police. And in dealing with the police, I... Um, you know, there was nothing I could do, and that's a whole other story. But I was exposed to this real mistreatment by the police and disrespect towards me as a survivor, as a victim, as somebody trying to get justice. And I was like, this is kind of my personality. Like, hmm, is it just me <laughs> or is this how they treat rape survivors? I think it's the latter. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to okay. leave it there, so I ended up doing a year of activism and just like kind of obsessively talking to women who had been uh, raped in San Francisco, talking with, it it just ends up getting huge. I'm connected with the city supervisor who got a law path. There's all these amazing women. And so then things calmed down a little bit, but I was still doing that work. And we started the podcast and we basically started with that being sort of in the room as part of the story, even though, um, you know, we would talk about it. I mean, we would talk for like half an hour. I would tell him, oh, this new thing happened. This, you know, detective did this, this and this, you know. And I know it informed the story a lot. But then also the Me Too thing. So it's almost like this thing was happening. And what I think is really, and I'm really curious to see what these guys think about this, but um, my take on it, on The Diarist, is that, you know, it starts out sort of like Mad Men and everything's like a little stylized, a little typing, a little this... But it gets dark, and the ways it gets dark, I think, um, kind of lures people in to this um, frame of you know thinking where this male privilege is normalized, and so um, like it deals with issues of consent. There are three women who have different sexual relationships with Richard, the character. One is consensual, one is non-consensual, and one is questionable. But they're all misuses of power. And even in the consensual situation, that can change. And I think that that, to me, is like a very dramatic statement about sexual assault because there's all of these areas that people think are gray, and it's never gray. you know. And even with this woman who enjoys this exciting relationship when she doesn't want to and he still does it, that's non-consensual. Um, so I think... I don't know. It feels like this is I feel like I'll look back in five years and be like, that's what this was about. Uh, Donna, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about The Diarist uh, and listen, binge listen (laughs) to the 17 extent episodes and maybe help support your work if they like what they hear? Yes. Um, You can find us on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or any any place where you can get a podcast. Um, We're at thediaristpodcast.com. And we also have a Patreon, and we're going to be starting a membership drive for Season 2. And that's at Diarist at Patreon. Uh Yeah, Uh Diarist at Patreon. But you can always go to thediaristpodcast.com, and um, that'll have all the information as well. Well, Donna, Beth, Ryan, thanks very much for coming into KBOOT tonight. Thank you. Thank you. It would be criminal if we ended this interview segment without getting you hooked on The Diarist. So here's a good place to start. Episode 1 in its entirety. 
You're listening to The Diarist, a Red Couch Black Dog production. Episode 1, The Promotion. I'm trying to remember now how it was in the beginning. Rows and rows of desks. Young women, like myself, hired to do just about any type of office work, mostly typing and filing. We were also there to cater to the whims of the executives. The higher on the ladder, the more special attention. Not what you're thinking. Things like flowers for the executives' wives, travel arrangements, that sort of thing. The real reason we were all there was to meet a husband, and none of us were pretending otherwise. You'd think we were going to sorority lunch in the way we dressed for work every day. Well, most of us. There were the bookish girls who really had wanted a career in business. Their climb was steep, of course. And most of them settled on marriage, over the life of a spinster secretary with little hope of advancement. I certainly wasn't hiding my motive for my position, although I wasn't actively looking either. I couldn't tell you when it started, but once it had, I gained a new sense. I could feel Richard Hayes, no matter where he moved in the office, and that feeling was particularly strong when he was near me. It was as if a thin thread of attraction had tethered me to him and grew taut the closer he came to me. It must have been something dormant my entire life, a time bomb waiting to be detonated. Even those first days at Roth, Hayes, and Johnson, I felt as if I would break down and cry when I felt his eyes on me from across the expanse of open space. A vast area filled with rows of desks before which secretaries in all varieties sat and typed away, some with a pencil behind her ear, nearly all with French twists or even bouffants. Rather than a cacophony, the sound of all those typewriters, keys pecking at crisp white letterhead, created a comforting hum, the rhythm of a distant train. But when Richard Hayes entered, a growing buzz would afflict me, a dizziness. We were there for the choosing. None of us minded, or at least I think we didn't. We had an unspoken code. If a group of us girls went to lunch, we'd fawn over a gift from one of the executives to one of us. The start of a courtship that would end with a diamond... We all waited our turn. Yes, we were fish surrounded by sharks. Their gray or navy suits, a rough skin that had the appearance of smooth. And instead of sharp teeth, they donned smiles, cat tips, and a hand on the shoulder. (laughs) The executives. Around the office, Mr. Hayes, or Richard as I came to call him, was a movie star. The other girls had a certain feeling of protective intimacy towards him, a removed sympathy, and they would talk about him as if they knew him. 
Richard, you see, was not like the other executives. Those who cracked open bottles of champagne on Fridays and spent the evening with girls, sometimes on their laps, flirting and joking, before returning home to their families. Richard wasn't like them at all. He didn't pick a girl to be his stand-in wife in the office. No, Richard Hayes kept mostly to himself when it came to the office girls. If he tipped a hat, it was out of respect, not charming innuendo. There were only two things the girls knew about Mr. Hayes. One, he had been a fairly successful painter before starting the advertising firm. And two, his wife was a lunatic. Number two was the most intriguing to me. A lunatic. It was certainly true. She'd been put away for hearing voices. Many times. Once for a whole month. Mr. Hayes had asked his girl Lucy to send flowers to the hospital. He'd never said what kind of hospital, but Lucy knew. And everyone knew what Kings Park State Hospital was. Eventually... Lucy would work late some nights, looking after the Hayes children. His poor wife locked up in some institution. A fine one, I imagined, but a loony bin, nonetheless. She was in and out of hospitals. Crazy. And Richard Hayes, for all his good looks and opportunities for cheating, he remained honorable and stoic. So naturally, at first, I thought it was all in my head. That I'd gotten a crush innocent enough, and that it would pass, or at least nothing would come of it. But then, when I realized there was an unspoken reciprocation, I blamed myself for my feelings. Oh, I suppose I blamed Mother, too. I'd given her too much say in how I presented myself at the office. Too many hours at Neiman Marcus, trying on and buying pencil skirts and blouses, her eyeing me up and down, inspecting my figure... My mother had class. She knew how to accentuate natural beauty with a hint of something more. She knew well, because she had been very beautiful. Although nowhere near as glamorous as mother, I was pretty too. Mother would sit outside the fitting rooms and nod to the sales girl when something worked. She picked my pumps and stockings. So I was designed and delivered to these hungry sharks. I didn't need to be coy or even openly interested. Mother was right. I was asked on many dates and even went on one or two. But I began to see that finding a husband would not be easy. It seemed that most of the men made me quite repulsed. Even handsome Alan Drake or Mitch Williams. Oh, I found them loathsome and I didn't know why. Or maybe I did. Maybe it was that tether. It pulled harder around the other male prospects. I didn't know it, but I wanted Richard Hayes. Just about done with that contract? Yes, I'm done with it. I hope to never see another contract from Studebaker again. I don't blame you. Listen, I want to tell you what I found out yesterday. Gossip? Mrs. Hayes is back in the hospital again. Waterville State Hospital. She had an attack again last night. What kind of attack? It's a lunatic asylum. What happened to her? I can tell you she's crazy as a bat. Poor thing. She's a real loony. 
Her poor little daughter. One little girl, right? Mr. Hayes has one child? That's right. I just don't think it's right to have children when you're so crazy. I worked until two in the morning over at their apartment. I was up reading to the little girl. She couldn't fall asleep, of course. You went home at two in the morning? No. I stayed on the couch. Don't you recognize my outfit from yesterday? (laughs) No, I hadn't. (laughs) It's just about every night these days. I'll be glad when I leave this place. Never come back. Really. I feel sometimes as if I'm being taken advantage of. Yes, I would too. Is she beautiful? Who? Mrs. Hayes? Margaret Hayes? Yes. I imagine she must be with how good-looking Mr. Hayes is. At one time, I suppose she must have been. The picture of her on his desk, she's really beautiful in that one. Like a movie star. But now she's nothing like that. I wouldn't even know it was her. The picture, I mean, if I didn't know. What happened to her? What does she look like now? Oh, Ellen is coming this way. I'll have to save the gossip for lunch. Are you joining us? All the girls are going over to Al's deli. I wish I could. I told Mother I'd meet her for lunch over at the Lotus Room. The Lotus Room? That's fancy. Yes, well, I sincerely dread it. Mother has ulterior motives, believe me. Trying to grill me on the eligible executives. The first step in her diabolical plan to marry me off so we can lunch at the country club every day. Well, do you have time for a smoke first while I wait for the girls? Sure. Let me just put this in Susan's box for Mr. Roth's signature. I'm in a rush. Afternoon, girls. You all right, dear? I'm sorry, Mr. Hayes. You startled me. Lucy, I need you to organize the campaign materials for this afternoon's presentation. We've got some changes. Now? I was just heading off to lunch. It's got to be done. He makes me so nervous. Yes, but he's not so much of a bear. I've worked for worse. He's nice enough, and at least he's not a flirt like the other men around here. He's never once propositioned me. I can't say the same for the rest of these sharks. As long as things are done his way. I suppose you're right. Really, are you all right? You're flush. Do you have a fever? My sister said there's a flu going around. She's got two little ones. It hits them first, you know. The children, I mean, before it spreads around. Have I described him, Richard? Sort of Cary Grant looks. Not quite as slender, but the perfectly symmetrical features. Dark eyes and hair. A slight cleft chin. Tailored suits. Light gray or charcoal. White press shirt. A wool overcoat or a trench coat in the rain. A fedora. Richard had the largest office, the one in the corner by the window. I was a terrible snoop, and after a time I tried to find excuses to look around. But at first no opportunity presented itself. I envied Lucy when I felt him walk off the elevator and saw her greet him, take his briefcase, help him with his coat. I wondered how she felt to be so close to him. For him to hand his hat to her? She was ever the professional, Lucy. Already engaged to another one of the partners, she was like a kid's sister to him. She'd carry his things, hang up his coat. Eventually, his routine included a glance across the rows of secretaries to me. 
I would blush and look down. I began to think I was conspicuous in my puppy love. Sorry I'm late, Mother. I was talking to one of the girls. There's a terrible cold going around. No, no. Sit down. Let me look at you. I hope you're disheveled from rushing. I hope you didn't go to work this way. What way? Do I look all right? Before you go back, I'll help you freshen up. How are you, darling? Excuse me. Yes, madam. I'll have a gin gimlet, and she'll have a ginger ale. Oh, and don't let me have another. No matter what, I promise. Right away. Mother, really, I'm old enough to have more than a ginger ale. Tell me, darling, how is this job going? Do you like it? Very much. Catherine Gibbs prepared me very well for my duties. I'm just in the typing pool now, but I hope to gain a secretarial position soon. Every now and again, a girl will leave for... Likely for marriage, I'm sure. Well, yes, that, or to take another job. Marriage... Uh, Here we are, a gin gimlet for the lady and a ginger ale for her lovely sister. Oh, no, silly. I'm her mother. Oh, I I beg your pardon. I, I would have sworn you were sisters. Well, that's nice of you to say. I'm afraid you're after a big tip. Well, may I take your order? Thank you. We'll both have a shrimp Louis salad, no rolls. Very good. Yes. Well, hopefully you'll be turning in a resignation soon. Or more aptly, trading it in for a ring? Yes. Well, have you met anyone? Not really. Not really? I've been on a couple of dates, but I don't think... And what's wrong with these poor fellows this time, Andrea? I don't know. I just... I sometimes find these men boorish. They talk and talk about themselves and... What do you expect, dear? Haven't I taught you anything? You do all the talking with father. Of course I do. I'm married now. He has no choice but to listen. No, it's because he loves you. I'll bet you were madly in love when you met. Oh, you know darned well that it was quite a smooth transition from girl to wife for me. I knew I'd marry your father since I was 15. He knew it, too. I'd say by the time we went to homecoming, we were an old married couple. It's always been that way. He's a wonderful husband. Hmm. Well, I'm not so sure what I want. Well, tell me about one of these dates you've had. There's a writer, a copywriter named Jim Mitchell... We went out for dinner one night. It was all right, I guess. Well, why don't you like him? I do, Mother. When are you going out again? Mother, can we change the subject? All right. Well, tell me, how was the apartment? I hate the idea of you living alone here in the city. I miss you, you know that, don't you? Hmm. And I hate telling the girls at the club that you're out here, alone, living in a flat, working. I like it. I'm thinking of getting a roommate. I'm sure there's a girl at work who may need a place at some point. I don't know why your father was so insistent on you getting your own place. He has different dreams for me is all. (sighs) Yes. Dreams of a girl who breaks the mold. A girl who'd live in Paris in the unscrupulous art scene. The one place he and I disagree. How is it that we disagree on the most important thing in the world, darling? How can we disagree on your future? This is the domain of the mother, I'm sorry to say. Well, I like my apartment. Perhaps we can go shopping for some curtains and rugs and things. Oh, that would be lovely. If only it were for a real home with the husband and children. 
Two shrimp, Louis? Thank you. Mother had her aspirations for me. Wife, mother, socialite. My mother had tried the debutante route, but we simply weren't that rich, and our family name wasn't easily recognized amongst the New York and Connecticut circles. She wasn't a fighter. She was perfectly content at the country club, amongst other well-to-do women, sipping cocktails and planning their children's futures, particularly those of their coming-of-age daughters. Truth be told, I leaned towards my mother's plan. That's why I took the secretarial position at Roth, Hayes, and Johnson. I wasn't opposed to the idea of marrying one of these powerful men, moving up the ladder, so to speak. I liked children well enough, and it would have been a smooth transition to the country club. Martinis, all that. All of this, of course, was completely the naive laissez-faire of a woman who'd never been in love. I didn't really know anything about what I wanted or how far I would go to get it. I didn't know what it was like to be blind with passion or to become obsessed when scorned. I never understood an insatiable need for someone. Until I met Richard Hayes. Oh, jeez. Oh, stupid. Ellen, have Andrea take Lucy's place today. Yes, sir. I'll get you settled in and then bring her over. Me? Andrea. Oh, yes, Ellen. Mr. Hayes would like for you to fill in for Lucy today. Lucy? Yes, Lucy. Mr. Hayes' girl? No, I know. I know who she is. I just wanted to... All right, then. Collect your things and I'll walk you over there. Show you the ropes. Why me? Why you what, Andrea? I'm sorry. I'm very nervous. Oh, you should be. He's one of the partners and you're acting odd. Don't do that. I'm going to tell you a little something, Andrea, since you're the new girl here. You strike me as naive. But know this. We are fish surrounded by sharks. These executives, their gray or navy suits, it's a rough skin with the appearance of smooth. Instead of teeth, they give you smiles, but don't be fooled. One mistake and they'll eat you alive. Okay, sit here at Lucy's desk. Mr. Hayes will call you on the speaker, or he'll call you into his office when you need something. You'll answer his phone, Mr. Hayes' office. You take a message on this yellow tablet. He likes his messages delivered every 15 minutes, unless the caller says it's urgent. Do I bring him the message, if it's urgent? No. Andrea, you call him on speaker and ask him if he'd like to take the urgent call. Otherwise, you take a message just like with the others, but on the bottom right says it's urgent. Underline it and tell him personally when you give him the messages. What should I do in the meantime? What meantime? Well, like now. The phone isn't ringing. You'll be busy enough with dictations, preparing presentations, typing letters and memos. Mr. Hayes may have you run errands. You'll be busy enough. If you're not busy, then look busy. If you can't look busy, then look pretty until you get busy. Okay. All right. Lucy? No, I'm Andrea, Mr. Hayes. I'm filling in for Lucy. Come take a dictation. Certainly. You'll need a notepad. Oh, right. Yes, I do. I will. 
Here, sit down. Thank you. Is something wrong? Why do you ask that? I wasn't sure. I just haven't... I was just waiting for the dictation is all. No, we haven't formally met. We haven't met at all. <laughs> no, I guess we haven't. Very clever. I'm sorry, I'm very nervous. Oh, naturally. That's understandable. Yes. But I'm very qualified, I want to assure you. Oh, you are, are you? Yes, sir. I, I graduated from Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School. Well, that's impressive. Thank you, Mr. Hayes. Lucy's leaving. She's getting married. I'm sure you've heard. Yes, I'm very happy for her. No, I'm glad to hear it. Yes, I am, Mr. Hayes. Why is that? I wouldn't be too happy for her. Nathan's an ogre, and Lucy's a nice girl. <laughs> That's funny. She's happy, so I'm, I'm happy for her, I guess. I'm sorry, Miss Davies. Would you like a smoke? Oh, no, no, thank you. How old are you, Andrea? I'm 24. What are your aspirations? My aspirations? Yes. What would you like to do with your life? Well, in the near future, I no, would... No, tell me about the big picture. Well, I suppose I'm not sure. My father would like for me to take painting lessons in Paris. He doesn't want me to follow my mother's dreams at all. What are your mother's dreams for you? Marriage, children. But Paris is more appealing? No. It's my father's dream for me to become an artist among the intellectuals. Well, your father's dreams for you sound quite nice. I can think of worse fates. He'd love for me to study with someone like Jackson Pollock. Oh, is that so? Is Mr. Pollock an acquaintance of his? Oh, not really. See those paintings on the wall? Those are mine. I'm a painter. Oh, wow. This one here, the off-white one. The paint looks so smooth, like a photograph. The two red lines, they seem weightless. What does it mean? At one time I called it gravity. I'm impressed. They're quite good. Perhaps your father would accept me as a substitute for Mr. Pollock. <laughs> Working here, you mean? Yes, I think he would be impressed. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea, why don't I take you to lunch? The reason I asked Ellen to have you fill in today was to find out if you'd make a good replacement for Lucy. After she's married, she won't be back. In fact, she's asked me if she could be released early so she can plan her wedding with her mother. I want you to be my secretary, Andrea. Oh, that would be a stroke of good luck. I've been wanting to move out of the typist pool. This is just wonderful. I won't disappoint you. I'm very happy, Mr. Hayes. Thank you for considering me for the position. It's a lot of work, but I'm certain you're up for the challenge. Yes, I think I am. I am completely available and willing to work hard. We can talk more about the details over lunch. How about I take you to the Lotus Room in the Grand Hotel downtown? The food is delicious. Shall I bring a pen and notepad? <laughs> you are ambitious. No, that won't be necessary. We went to the Lotus Room for lunch. I was thankful that I'd surrendered to Mother's taste in dress. My lightweight wool skirt and camel cashmere sweater was met with subtle appreciation, I'm sure. My mother did know the finer things. I have to credit her with that. 
Anne's good intuition. My attire was bait. Neither of us knew it would lure in the biggest fish in the ocean. At the table again, Mother's influence paid off. I knew how to manage the silverware, pronounce the French vichysoise. We'll start off with a martini for me, dry, and a pink squirrel for the lady. With lunch, a bottle of claret, the Mouton Rothschild. We'll both have steak Diane, rare. Very well. Would you like a smoke? No, thank you. I rarely smoke. Is that right? I suppose most girls don't, at least not in public. Yes. Well, my mother's rule, never smoke around a man. As a good habit, don't smoke at all. The lingering scent can be very off-putting. Here we are, one pink squirrel and one martini. Thank you. Of course. As for alcohol, she says a girl should only pretend to sip. You need to keep your wits about you. It sounds like a very wise woman. Cheers to mother. This is very good. A pink squirrel? That's right. Thank you, Mr. Hayes. This really is very lovely and generous. I imagine it'll make up for many late nights with just coffee and sandwiches. What do you think about helping out with some of the campaigns? Would you be interested in some creative work? Yes, I would. I hadn't expected... You know, my father believes I have some artistic talent. Is that right? Yes. In fact, he has quite silly, unrealistic aspirations for me. Sometimes I'm not so sure if he would like for me to become an artist or just to marry me off to one. So he would have a son, like Pollock or Picasso. Oh, I'm sorry, I must sound so silly and naive. Not at all. I'm impressed. I'm sure your father sees talent in you. What sort of art do you do? Sketching and a little painting. I attended a summer internship at the School of Paris. Is that so? That's quite impressive. Really, I was a fish out of water. Not nearly as talented as my father had imagined. I hoped. Nowhere near as talented as the other girls. That's the reason I enrolled in Catherine Gibbs. And now I'm here. Well, I'm glad for it. Although I imagine you're underestimating yourself. I'm sure you are. Other than what I've seen secondhand through Lucy, what does the job entail, Mr. Hayes? Quite a lot more than your duties now. Ellen will fill you in on all the secretarial responsibilities. I'm sure she'll have you up to speed on that. As for my expectations... Yes? Well, I expect 100% loyalty. No talking with other girls about campaigns or the things that I tell you. You'll be the closest person to my work. Often I keep things to myself. Part of politics and strategy. No one will push you for information unless you show a weakness for gossip, which I imagine you don't. No, sir, of course not. And the creative work? Oh, there's a lot of it. Sketching storyboards. We work closely with the art department. Stephen Morris is the new director up there. But of course, there will be times that are strictly secretarial. I can't promise it will all be interesting. I assume you enjoy organizing and keeping things running smoothly? Yes, I do. Very much. How's your lunch? Very good. Thank you. I love this restaurant. The piano music and the light coming in through the windows. 
It's always so lovely. Well, down to business, shall we? Yes, of course. I'm assuming it's all right to work after hours on occasion? Yes, it won't be a problem. You live uptown? Yes, I have a small flat. I'm looking for a girl to share. Half the rent and wealth, you know. Although on occasion I take the train back to my parents' home in Connecticut, my father picks me up at the station. That won't be a problem? Working late on those nights? I don't think so. No, not at all. I'm quite independent. My father encourages it. He sounds forward-thinking. I'm sure it's quite a tennis match over your place, with your parents battling it out to see whose dream you fulfill. That was rude of me. I apologize. No. I'm afraid you've described my life perfectly. As for working late, it won't be a problem. Mr. Hayes, may I ask you a question? Sure. Go ahead. Lucy said your wife has bouts of illness. Lucy's had to work beyond the job at times. I'm sorry, that isn't my business. Well, I'm sure you've heard the rumors. Yes. Are they just that? Rumors? No. I wish they were. You should know. It's a terrible situation, as you can imagine. Margaret, my wife, has been very unwell since the birth of our daughter, Margot. She's of weak constitution. She's very ill, and there are times when I'm called away or Lucy's had to come and mind the children. Not too often. Of course. I'm very sorry. What is it? What does she have, her affliction? The doctors say hysteria. Really, they don't know. She was a perfectly fine girl. Then we were married. Shortly after, she had a breakdown. That's awful. I'm sorry. Is there nothing they can do? Thank you, Andrea. The details are too much to get into now. Over time, I'll share more. The doctors and I and, and her family, of, of course. We all hope she'll recover. But the prognosis isn't very good, I'm afraid. Oh, it's really heartbreaking. This all, too, should remain confidential. I'm afraid Lucy wasn't so good at keeping it to herself. No, I suppose she wasn't. But it's imperative that you do. Yes, absolutely, I will. Everything between us must be confidential. I'm placing my trust in you. Of course. I had so many questions, but I felt it wasn't my place. Mr. Hayes? Richard. Well, all right. Richard, may I ask you one more question? Of course. How do you know I'll be able to fill Lucy's shoes? Be a good secretary to you? Do I look like a man who makes bad business decisions? No, I suppose not. Would you like a smoke? Yes, I think I will this time. The music is just lovely, isn't it? The lunch was delicious. We both had steak Diane. The meal was prepared right at our table, and it reminded me so much of lunches at the country club with Mother. The light coming in from the large windows was bright yellow, the colors of springtime. It was early on yet, but already Richard Hayes had an elevating effect on my senses. 
I don't know if it was the promotion as well, but I had a certain euphoria, and I thought to myself, how surprising life can be. Just a few months ago, I was arguing with Mother over what I should do with my life. Her green eyes flashing frustration over her 24-year-old daughter, still unmarried. Hardly any prospects except the Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School certificate in my possession. I guess she was right. Why hadn't I fallen in love? Why wasn't I already married, doting over a husband and children? You're listening to the Holy Crowley Hour on KBOO Portland, your strange and prickly radio station. We just heard episode one of the locally produced neo-noir podcast, The Diarist, coming to you courtesy of our guest tonight, Donna Barrow-Green, Beth Ricketson, and Ryan Bowen. A big thank you to Donna, Beth, and Ryan for joining us here at KBOO. Well, that's all for this episode of the Holy Crowley Hour. If there's even the slightest possibility you like what you heard, you can tune in every fourth Monday of the month from 11 p.m. to midnight, and you can stream and download previous episodes from our Holy Crowley Hour page on the KBOO website, kboo.fm. Many thanks to Crowley Cult member and Holy Crowley Hour producer Jason Harder and to Liam Delta for engineering tonight's show. I'm your host, Ken Jones, saying see you all again next month, Monday, December 24th. Hey, it's Christmas Eve at 11 p.m. In the meantime, I'll be heading outside the KBOO studios to catch a ride back to Carl Crowley headquarters in Beaverton, an entire town that looks like it was designed by David Lynch. Good night, everyone. Joe Woods is coming up next with Faraway Places, where no one has sex without Joe's consent. <laughs>